Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, January 26th, 2023 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today, we'll be reading the following articles. Atmospheric Rivers Endanger the West by Dave Marston. Handcrafted by Paul Vokes. In Our Prime by Will Matsuka. A Monolith in the Community by Will Matsuka. In With the Old by Will Matsuka. Brewing Discontent by Samuel Shaw. This is the Sound of a Gavel by Jesse J. Gray. Out of the Void by Christopher Piercy. Words of Comfort by Adam Perry. Atmospheric Rivers Endanger the West by Dave Marston. Moab, Utah gets just eight inches of rain per year. Yet, rainwater flooded John Wiseheit's basement last summer. Extremes are common in a desert. Rain and snow are rare, and a deluge can cause flooding. Wiseheit, 68, co-director of Living Rivers and a former Colorado River guide, has long warned the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation that its two biggest dams on the Colorado River could become useless because of prolonged drought. Although recently at a Burek conference, he also warned that atmospheric rivers could overtop both dams, demolishing them and causing widespread flooding. Wiseheide points to Burek research by Robert Swain in 2004, showing an 1884 spring runoff that delivered two years' worth of Colorado River flows in just four months. California well knows the damage that long, narrow corridors of water vapor, atmospheric rivers, can do. Starting in December, one atmospheric storm followed another over the state, dumping water and snow on already saturated ground. The multiple storms moved fast, sometimes over 60 miles per hour, and they quickly dropped their load. Atmospheric rivers can carry water vapor equal to 27 Mississippi rivers. These storms happen every year, but what makes them feel new is their ferocity, which some scientists blame on climate change, warming the oceans, and heating the air to make more powerful storms. In California, overwhelmed storm drains sent polluted water to the sea. Roads became waterways, sinkholes opened up to capture cars and their drivers, and houses flooded. At least 22 people died. Where do these fast-moving storms come from? Mostly north and south of Hawaii, then they barrel directly toward California and into the central west, says F. Martin Ralph, who directs the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. 
40% of the snowpack in the upper Colorado in the winter is from atmospheric river storms penetrating that far inland, he adds. The real risk is when storms stack up as they did in California. That happened in spades during the winter of 1861-62, in the middle of a decade-long drought, when the West endured 44 days of rain and wet snow. California Governor-elect Leland Stanford rode to a soggy oath-of-office ceremony in flooded Sacramento, just before fleeing with state leaders to San Francisco. Water covered California's inland valley for three months, and paddle-wheel streamers navigated over submerged farmlands and inland towns. The state went bankrupt, and its economy collapsed as mining and farming operations were bogged down. One quarter of livestock drowned or starved, and 4,000 people died. In Utah that winter, John Doyle Lee chronicled the washing away of the town of Santa Clara along the tiny Santa Clara River near St. George. Buildings and farms floated away, leaving only a single wall of a rock fort the townspeople had built on high ground. Weisheit knows this history well because he's been part of a team of paleo-flood investigators, a group of scientists and river experts. To document just how high floodwaters rose in the past, researchers climb valley walls. The Journal of Hydrology says they seek fine-grained sediments, mainly sand. It's a peculiar science searching for sandbars and driftwood perched 60 feet above the river. The Green River contributes roughly half the water that's in the lower Colorado River, and in 2005, Weisheit and other investigators found six flood sites along the Green River near Moab, Utah. Weisheit says several sites showed the river running at 275,000 cubic feet per second, CFS. If the Green River merged with the Colorado River, also at flood, the Colorado River would carry almost five times more water than the 120,000 CFS that barreled into Glen Canyon Dam, some 160 miles below Moab, in 1984. That epic runoff nearly wiped out Glen Canyon Dam. Now that we've remembered the damage that atmospheric river storms can do, Wiseheide believes the Bureau of Reclamation must tear down Glen Canyon now. He likes to quote Western historian Patty Limerick, who told the Bureau of Reclamation at a University of Utah conference in 2007 what she really thought. The Bureau can only handle little droughts and little floods. When the big ones arrive, the system will fail. Dave Marston is the publisher of Writers on the Range, writersontherange.org, an independent nonprofit dedicated to spurring lively conversation about the West. This opinion column does not necessarily reflect the views of Boulder Weekly. Handcrafted by Paul Vokes A few years ago, just before my retirement, I knew I had achieved true elder status on the faculty when I announced, just as I had the previous 46 semesters, that the first exam of the semester would be conducted in blue books. What's a blue book? A student asked for the first time in my professional career. You mean like get a price on a car? Another young man asked. For a test? I don't get it. The blue book, academic, not automotive, 
meant that students would have to create essay form answers by hand with pens inside a small, usually 24-page booklet. Just last week, I noticed an op-ed piece in the Washington Post about ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence program introduced in November that can produce remarkably credible pieces of writing. It has caused a good deal of hand-wringing in academic circles because of its potential to enable plagiarism. The Post author, Markham Hyde, proposed a radical counteroffensive: bring back handwriting. Since the introduction of word processing programs, handwriting has become an ever smaller part of daily life for nearly every adult in the United States. We put pen to paper to send the occasional greeting card, perhaps to write a personal check, maybe a shopping list. But even most shoppers at the supermarket, I've noticed, now consult their phones. The benefits of writing with computers are plain. It helps the environment by saving millions of reams of paper each day. And using a word processor is simply more efficient. A keyboarding writer can compose an essay, even making 159 revisions, in a small fraction of the time it would take to write the same essay by hand. And as some of us recall from our school days, misspelling a single word often meant tearing up the sheet and starting again. Is there value in reading and writing cursive? The education establishment seems to have little appetite for handwriting instruction. Twelve years ago, handwriting was dropped from the nation's Common Core for grades K through 12. Since then, I'm pleased to see nearly half of the states, but not Colorado, have reinstated the mandate. My preference for blue book exams goes to the heart of why I still believe in handwriting. Handwriting compels the writer to think through to an entire sentence, and often to an entire paragraph, before writing the first word. Digitized writing, by contrast, encourages the writer to dump words onto the screen, and begin a process of cutting, pasting, deleting, and inserting, until the verbiage starts to resemble expository writing. When the subject is law or ethics, the courses in which I require blue book exams. Crafting a cogent argument before starting to write is a commendable skill, and without a laptop for the exam, all cheating schemes become low-tech and highly risky. I dug a little deeper and found a small but growing body of research on the effects of handwriting versus word processing. Cognitive scientists have found that handwriting, while exasperating for most young students, demands a degree of small motor and hand-eye coordination that is rarely found in the classroom, yet useful later in life. More surprising to me were the findings that handwriting is positively correlated with better processing of concepts, more creation of original work, and better accuracy in comprehending foreign languages. I would add a certain cultural value. Handwriting is part of each person's identity. We were taught to copy exact forms for each letter, printing and cursive. But by the time we're adults, we've each developed a handwriting style that is uniquely our own. Whenever I would receive a letter or note from a parent or sibling, back when we would write to each other by hand, I knew exactly who had written it after reading the first three words. We each had a signature for writing checks or signing memos or receipts. Nowadays, of course, a scribble qualifies as a signature. Do we really want to lose this part of our identity?
Handwriting was a common means of written communication for centuries, before the advent of word processing. Will our grandchildren even be able to read handwritten historical documents from the 19th and 20th centuries? Will they be able to read letters written by their grandparents? A friend of mine recently read a trove of love letters, nearly 700 of them, exchanged between her grandparents from 1900 to 1909. She organized the letters into a loving, historically fascinating book, which was published just last month. Every one of those letters was handwritten. What if my friend had lacked the ability to read cursive? I'll continue to write by hand, but I must concede only when the situation seems appropriate. After all, this essay took me hours to write in cursive, and I wrote it out only after I typed my rough draft on a laptop. Professor Emeritus and Founding Department Chair Paul Vokes has taught journalism at CU since 2003. This opinion column does not necessarily reflect the views of Boulder Weekly. In Our Prime by Will Matsuka Your twenties are a time of hard work and occasionally hedonism. We think it's fair to say Boulder Weekly's second decade followed that pattern. We've covered the boxer shorts-bearing exploits of local gadflies, taken local leaders to task, detailed the nuances of environmental threats, and called out the oil and gas industry's attempt to extract at the expense of our health. We've celebrated and we've skewered, we've made mistakes, and we hope grown from them. Through it all, for 29 years, the community has supported our mission to produce hyper-local, independent, no-holds-barred journalism. You've helped us find the stories, given us your expertise, donated your money, and held us accountable. Everything we do is in service to you, our readers, and your support is what has kept Boulder Weekly alive and vibrant for nearly three decades. That's why, for the last several years, Boulder Weekly has chosen to celebrate its anniversary by shining a light on the amazing work coming out of our community. This year, we've focused on a handful of other long-standing institutions celebrating anniversaries, from those preserving our built history to those protecting our musical heritage. We're grateful to be in a community of brilliant, progressive, dedicated people, and we hope we can continue to support each other as we build an even greater future. Thank you for your support for these past 29 years. We literally couldn't do it without you. A monolith in the community. Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Center Turns 40 by Will Matsuka. On October 15, 1983, Betty Ball found herself linked arm in arm with 17,000 others surrounding the Rocky Flats plant a nuclear weapons facility 10 miles south of Boulder. I was thrilled to get to be part of the encirclement. It was the first protest on that scale I was ever involved in, says Ball, who also helped organize food delivery for protesters and sold t-shirts for the event. The encirclement was organized by some of the soon-to-be founders of Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Center, RMPJC, a nonprofit organization advocating for radically progressive personal and social change rooted in nonviolence. 
One of the org's key advocacy efforts is pointed toward nuclear disarmament. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the establishment of RMPJC and of the protest. There was an air of excitement at the protest that really can't be explained. It was alive with excitement, Ball says. The Rocky Flats plant was formally shut down in 1992 and has since been deemed an Environmental Protection Agency Superfund site and cleaned up after hazardous and radioactive materials contaminated the site. The encirclement and the establishment of RMPJC was only the beginning of Ball's life of activism. After organizing in California for 13 years, Ball returned to Boulder and immediately got involved with RMPJC, where she worked for 22 years and is still on the board today. She retired in 2020. Claire O'Brien, Administrative Director at RMPJC and recent CU Boulder graduate, says Ball's commitment to the cause is inspiring. I think it really speaks to the organization, just that there's people who have spent their entire lives continuing to support and be part of an organization, she says. I really admire it, and it definitely makes RMPJC seem like quite the monolith in the community. RMPJC has used the momentum from its inception to spread advocacy efforts in the community, something O'Brien still sees in her outreach events today. Pretty much every time I'm out doing canvassing or tabling, I talk to people who have some personal connection to that encirclement, O'Brien says. Although the nuclear arms race is over, the organization still advocates against nuclear weapons today. On January 19th, the organization presented a petition to Boulder City Council, urging them to sign a proclamation in support of the International Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. More than 70 municipalities and states have passed resolutions supporting the treaty, including Denver and Longmont. 86 countries have signed the treaty, but none of the nuclear nations have joined, including the U.S., Ball believes nuclear arms is the greatest threat to our society, saying, We're not going to have to worry about any of those other issues if somebody triggers the bomb. To highlight the anniversary and build support for their cause, O'Brien says RMPJC wants to bring activists in the community together to try to touch on the feelings that were felt 40 years ago during the encirclement, which was really hope and optimism. The organization is planning to hold events this summer. It's O'Brien's goal to rebuild that sense of community, support and togetherness, despite struggling to get people involved, especially young people. Really, what I think about the most is trying to get back to that level of community at the encirclement, she says. We're all so isolated now, and things are pretty separated. Ball and O'Brien will turn to the community to continue doing what RMPJC does best, rallying people under a common cause. The Peace Center has gone on for 40 years, Ball says, and we need to build now to continue it for another 40. In with the Old Historic Boulder Celebrates 50 Years by Will Matsuka what creates community? To Susan Osborne, it's buildings.
I strongly believe that historic preservation has everything to do with making a community feel like a solid good place, says Osborne, who's lived in Boulder since 1964 and worked as a city planner, taught at CU, and served on city council and as mayor. I think that recalling the past through the saving of buildings is part of telling the story about who we were and who we've evolved to in the present day. Osborne is an active member and a two-time past president of Historic Boulder, a group that has worked to safeguard Boulder's history by preserving buildings and other physical spaces over the last 50 years. The organization has been at work in Boulder since March of 1972, preserving prominent buildings like the Boulder Theater, Glen Huntington Bandshell, and the Hotel Boulderado, and hosting historical tours like its Meet the Spirits Cemetery Tour at the Columbia Cemetery and the Home for the Holidays Tour. In 2022, the organization announced the successful preservation of the Midland Savings Bank slash Atrium Building, which was designed by the well-known architecture firm Hobart Wagoner and Associates, and is one of the first mid-century modern structures to achieve landmark status in Boulder. Executive Director Leonard Siegel says Boulder didn't become one of the most appealing places to live in in the country by accident. It didn't just happen. Generations of citizens have envisioned a recipe of innovation, environmentalism, excellence in commerce, enriching culture and higher education, he says. In every generation, the physical settings, buildings slash neighborhoods, have established a nurturing backdrop that promotes these activities. Preserving those properties, Siegel says, transmits those values of the past to future generations. Historic Boulder works to preserve all types of historic sites, from important buildings to smaller pieces of Boulder's history. For Dan Corson, longtime member of Historic Boulder and a past president of the organization, it's the less obvious buildings that are most important to him, like the one at 1733 Canyon Boulevard, called the Woodward Baird House. It's a working-class house, which would have been right on the railroad tracks, and those are, of course, some of the least desirable in town, Corson says. This relic of Boulder's mining camp days, also known as the Little Grey House, was built around 1870 and was in a rough neighborhood with trains running by often and subject to regular floods, Corson says. It was the home to one of Boulder's early black families, Albert and Eliza Stevens' family, and located in the little rectangle area now known as Goss Grove. Shortly after the Little Grey House was purchased by Historic Boulder in 1977, Corson decided to join the organization's board. His first project was to plant bushes in front of the home. I'm very proud to be part of that legacy, he says. Osborne says acknowledging Boulder's history especially the treatment of indigenous and black people, through the preservation of places like the Little Grey House, will help the community move forward. It's all part of our history, and I think knowing about it helps us make better decisions in the present, says Osborne, who was most involved in the restoration of the Victorian-era Hannah Barker House, 800 Arapaho Ave, Boulder, in 2007. The house was near destruction until Historic Boulder stepped in, 
starting with upwards of $10,000 to remove effects of raccoon urine. Now the organization is working on restoring and preserving the roof and stucco on the Boulder Theater, which was nearly torn down in the 1980s before Historic Boulder helped broker a deal to safeguard the building and get it landmarked. Siegel says Historic Boulder will continue to enrich our mortal lives through historic preservation. Heritage properties that are preserved provide lessons to Boulder residents and visitors about the value of life's lessons as manifested in building form, Siegel says. Their presence is consciously and unconsciously experienced. Brewing Discontent Starbucks' baseline and Broadway location becomes first in Boulder to unionize by Samuel Shaw. It was dusk by the time votes were counted on Tuesday, January 24th. A representative for the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, tallied the results from inside the Starbucks while a dozen necks bent towards smartphones streaming the results from the parking lot. The federal agency adjudicates labor rights violations and administers union elections across the country. With a mix of guarded excitement and hope, the workers watched on, clearly cold, huddling but confident. Thirteen yes votes, two no votes. Baristas at the Baseline Branch, 2400 Baseline Road, of the world's largest coffee chain, won the election. They are the latest of nine Starbucks locations in Colorado to join the Workers' United Labor Union, and the first in Boulder to do so. One employee, then another, raised a fist before the chill set in. Drinks at a warm bar came next. This was a moment seven months in the making. It honestly began with someone telling a joke last summer, says Holden Sheftel, 31, a shift supervisor at the store who has worked with the company for more than seven years. We'd seen cuts to our hours and minimal increases in wages, even as the cost of living and inflation went up, Sheftel says. One of his colleagues remarked that they should start a union. Then we started to speak more seriously about it. A burgeoning movement meets a headwind. Six months prior, in Buffalo, New York, workers organized the first successful union at Starbucks in the company's history. Their complaints, low pay, cuts to hours, and lack of benefits, reverberated through the coffee giant, as did the workers' victory. By the end of 2022, more than 270 stores had unionized. These wins underscore a tectonic shift in how labor organizing is viewed in the United States, particularly among younger workers with a heightened sense of financial insecurity. Support for unions is at its highest since 1965, according to a Gallup survey published last August. But while cultural tides are changing, labor organizers are still swimming against the current. Those 270-odd Starbucks locations account for roughly 3% of the 9,000-plus stores operated by the brand, and the rate of successful union elections has slowed considerably since last spring. Organizers, as well as U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, believe Starbucks' hard-nosed approach to combating unions has frightened many workers from banding together. 
Sanders cited more than 500 complaints of labor rights violations filed against the company with the NLRB. Starbucks closed a unionized store in Colorado Springs last October in a move representatives for Workers United characterized as retaliatory. While in Denver, Colorado Public Radio reported on the circumstances surrounding Monique McGeorge's termination last May. The Starbucks employee was ostensibly fired for dropping a cake pop on the store counter and then handing it back to a customer, violating company food safety protocols. Workers United believes McGeorge's firing was a response to the East Colfax location's union election. Starbucks denies the allegations. We're hoping to make a statement. In spite of the risks, the Starbucks baristas on Broadway and Baseline are undeterred. We're looking forward to having more control over what happens in our store, says Rachel Frey, 22, a shift manager and organizing committee member. Sheftel explains the appeal of collective bargaining as a matter of survival for him and his co-workers. A living wage in Boulder is $21 an hour for a single adult working full-time with no children, according to MIT's Living Wage Calculator. Current job listings at Boulder County Starbucks list starting wages at $16 an hour, $2 less than McDonald's. But it's not just the amount of money people are making, Sheftel says. The reduction of hours means less people on the floor doing the same amount of work. It's stressful. Cuts to hours have cascading effects across the store, he adds. Workers who are also enrolled at university found it increasingly difficult to get shifts that accommodate their school schedules. Fewer hours mean less money for groceries and rent, and for older employees, it can mean losing eligibility for benefits like Starbucks' health care plan. Mostly, Frey says, the decision to unionize came down to exhausting all other options. We met with our district manager to try and address some of these problems. We were told that they didn't have a way to address them. Starbucks issued a statement on January 23rd in response to the impending vote. From the beginning, we've been clear in our belief that we are better together as partners without a union in between us. And that conviction has not changed, a company spokesman told Boulder Weekly over email. The election win is both a beginning and an end. It marks the culmination of dogged organizing and inaugurates a new phase for these coffee shop workers, the negotiation of a collective bargaining agreement over wages, hours, and store policies, which can take months in some cases. We're hoping to make a statement, Sheftel says. We're hoping to inspire other Starbucks in the area. This is the sound of a gavel. Judge John Hodgman dispenses fake internet justice at Gothic Theater Podcast Live Show by Jesse J. Gray. Jilly had beef with her husband, Steve. The conflict rested on a wrinkle in the Denver couple couldn't quite iron out. Should the city's historic University Hills neighborhood, where the pair had recently purchased their first home, be considered the suburbs? Steve emphatically said no. The Denver native takes great pride in his hometown and hated the idea of dissolving into what he considers the beige sameness of suburbia. Jilly underscored the fact that University Hills was not part of the city's original urban grid, 
submitting photos of the neighborhood's matching 1950s tract homes as evidence for her case. Enter the Honorable Judge John Hodgman. Over the course of an hour, the author, comedian, and actor dutifully heard arguments from both sides in Contempt of Carport, a 2019 episode of his titular faux courtroom comedy podcast. Per usual, his verdict delicately walked a hilarious and heartfelt line between tongue-in-cheek scolding and genuine insight. I can't help but say this is a suburb. Historically, it's a suburb. By looks, it's a suburb, Hodgman rolled. But I am glad to say that suburban neighborhoods are not the horror shows Steve imagines them to be. Culturally, the suburbs you hate are more in your mind than the world you live in. Such Judge John Hodgman disputes regularly include colored commentary and litigant interviews from his trusted bailiff, Jesse Thorne, a podcasting legend in his own right, along with occasional wisdom from a celebrity expert witness. Together, the pair have been dispensing fake internet justice since 2010, when the show spun off from its origins as a recurring segment on Thorne's long-running free-form comedy podcast, Jordan Jesse Go, distributed by his artist-owned, listener-supported Maximum Fun Network. The fundamental qualities of a good Judge John Hodgman dispute are, it has to be real, it has to have stakes, it can't be so intense as to be a bummer, says Thorne, whose NPR interview show Bullseye was the first public radio program west of the Mississippi to podcast. It has to have real love behind it, real care behind it, and ideally, it involves someone doing something really weird. But Hodgman's bona fides go beyond fake courtrooms. He's most recently the co-creator with David Reese of the FFXX animated series Dicktown, and the author of a half-dozen books, like the satirical almanac More Information Than You Require, and recent memoirs Vacation Land and Medallion Status. Readers over the age of 30 might also recognize Hodgman from his regular stint as a deranged millionaire correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, or perhaps his appearances opposite Justin Long in a series of mid-2000s Apple commercials. Ahead of the pair's upcoming performance at the Gothic Theatre in Englewood, Boulder Weekly sat down with Hodgman and Thorne over Zoom to talk about the history of the show and what attendees can expect from the February 2nd serving of Live Justice, plus Hodgman's favorite hobby store in Boulder, conspiracy theories surrounding Denver International Airport, and more. I spoke with Travis McElroy of My Brother, My Brother, and Me a few months back, to promote their Denver show, postponed to April 29th. So, before we get started, can we establish Boulder Weekly as the official alternative newspaper of the Max Fun Podcast Network? Jesse Thorne. Yeah, San Francisco Bay Guardian is out of business. You're in. John Hodgman. Absolutely. Eat it, Chicago reader. Actually, don't eat it. We need all of you. Thorne. Oh, I just remembered. I already gave the official alternative newspaper designation to Computer Currents. So, unless you have listings for used computer parts in your classifieds, we lose another one to Computer Currents. Hodgman. 
This is all on record, by the way. Best material you're going to get out of the whole article. This is your first time bringing the show to Denver. Have either of you spent much time here before? Thorne. I went to a public radio program director's conference in Denver, and we all went to a Rockies game. If you've ever wanted to take in a sporting event with a group of 200 people who have nothing but contempt for sports, I recommend going to a Rockies game with people from the public radio program director's conference. Hodgman. I was in Denver in spring of last year to talk to Jeff Tweedy of the band Wilco on stage, which was a lot of fun. And I also got to go to Convergence Station, the outpost of the Meow Wolf art installation empire, which I loved a lot. I also went to Boulder for the very first time last spring as well. I discovered that the Pearl Street Mall is the home of Liberty Puzzles HQ, my favorite jigsaw puzzle maker in the world. I had no idea. I just turned around and there it was. That really made me very excited. And basically, right across the street from there is a food hall where I bought an arepa from a young woman who was a big Judge John Hodgman fan, who I hope will come to the show. And I know you have something of an obsession with Denver International Airport, right? Hodgman. Well, I'm concerned for our country and our reality. Because the Denver International Airport is obviously up to something, as many people before me have observed. It is a very large airport on a very large parcel of land that is otherwise uninhabited. It has many, many sub-basements, more than an airport usually needs and a lot of very weird and creepy murals depicting a post-apocalyptic environment. So I want to know what's going on below there. I think above, it's basically what you would call an airport, welcoming planes that are arriving and saying goodbye to planes that are going to other places on this earth. I think below, trans-dimensional travel is likely for our interdimensional overlords. Have you already begun selecting cases for the Denver show on February 2nd? Any themes emerging? Thorn, I can tell you right now, we have two submissions from two different sets of people about the exact same thing, which is, can a dog's paws be considered hands? Hodgman, that's from two different sets of people? Thorn, yeah. It's a hot topic out here. Hodgman, I mean, this really does conform to my personal stereotype of what a Coloradan is doing all day long, which is obviously eating a lot of edibles and then staring at their dog and coming up with theories. Speaking of cases, what are you looking for when it comes to disputes, and what kind of stuff do you try to stay away from? Thorn, it has to be real. Hodgman, yeah, it has to be real. There have been a couple times where I've wondered if the disputants had maybe pulled one over on us with a fake dispute, just to get on a podcast. But I think for the most part, our listeners and the people who send in disputes understand that it's a sincere show. But what I'm looking for is this. Am I interested in it? Do I have something to say about it? Does it make me think about something? If I'm already starting to formulate questions for them in my head about why they think this or that then I know I want to be asking these questions in real life. We do like to have a wide variety of kinds of disputes. Many come in between romantic partners, particularly those who share a house together and are getting on each other's nerves. So we do try to find some that are more between roommates or friends, or siblings are always great, or moms and daughters. 
and some of them are just obvious, like the daughter who wrote in saying, My mom has a wish that when she dies, she'd like to be cremated and have me flush her ashes down the toilet at Disney World. Thorn. She really did want that, not fake. Hodgman. I want to know more about that situation, so that one was obvious. Probably the only ones we have gone over and over and over again are dishwashing disputes. I understand why the dishwasher and or the hand washing of dishes is a locus of dispute. That is a place where a lot of different styles and beliefs come into conflict in a relationship. But we've just heard them all this point, so we probably don't need them anymore. They're in the archives. You've been doing this show for 13 years now. How has it evolved since those early days? Thorn. I was totally wrong about what the tone of the show should be. I thought it would be funnier the higher the stakes were. I thought you couldn't have funny without stakes. And I think we have found that you do indeed need stakes. It needs to matter to the people involved. But ultimately, we need to have conflict that is resolvable. It's not a show about watching a train wreck. It's a show about watching a relationship be repaired. That's something I learned both from our audience who wanted that, and from the fact that I didn't anticipate how immediately and passionately John would pursue wisdom and sincerity in the content of the show. I was there, ready to yell at people or whatever. Then John started offering these verdicts that were really insightful. It immediately became clear to me that this wasn't just like, who stole whose dog? This was really about people's feelings. Hodgman. I also came in very hot at the beginning. People will remind me. It is true that I was pretty judgmental in the early days. Mad with power is perhaps the phrase that comes to mind. But it's very interesting to hear you say that, Jesse, because I had not really known that. I think I intuited pretty quickly that even though the dispute might be over something like which of these two friends gets to hang on to a wind-up toy giraffe they bought together once they move across the country from one another, that is, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty low-stakes dispute. But it's one that I, and I think Jesse, instantly understood to have very high stakes for them, as their friendship was going through a transition. They were splitting up, and there isn't a lot of conversation in our culture around friend breakups, but they happen all the time. They're a different kind, but it's sad when your best friend leaves. They were pouring a lot of their feelings about that breakup into this wind-up toy giraffe. I thought it was inappropriate, and I told them to smash it, as they should smash all feelings. No, I told them to take turns sharing. I never cut the baby in half. Leave that to some other judges. What can people expect from the upcoming performance in Denver? Hodgman. We have one very special guest. Thorne. Probably Colorado's funniest man, David Gabori, one of my favorite human beings on Earth, and the voice of Comedy Central. The man who comes out of my Paramount Plus app unexpectedly on a regular basis. He's just an absolute legend of hilarity. But beyond that, what you'll see is regular folks from Colorado up on stage with real disputes, and us acting dumb for a while, but then getting disarmingly sincere. John and I both sing in the show, and there's also a PowerPoint presentation that ends with a big local reference. Hodgman. It'll be our signature mix of sincere and silly, plus unexpected guests, 
or I guess now, expected guests. The surprise of live, in-the-moment dispute resolution, which is kind of improv comedy all on its own. Plus, the incredible costuming. I have some very fancy judges' robes from Canada that I wear, and Jesse Thorne has a bailiff costume, or I should say uniform, that is really quite glorious to behold. On the docket, Judge John Hodgman, Live Justice, 7.30pm, Thursday, February 2nd, Gothic Theatre, 3263 South Broadway, Englewood. Out of the Void As experimental metal band Sun rumbles back to life in their 25th year, co-founder Stephen O'Malley focuses on the fundamentals by Christopher Piercy. The concept of Shoshin arose from the teachings of a 13th century Buddhist priest and philosopher, Dogen Zenji. Practitioners of the ancient discipline are taught to keep one's original mind, a state of being where your consciousness is empty and ready for all possibilities. There's something of this Zen practice in the music of Sun, pronounced Sun, an ever-shifting heavy music mainstay from Seattle, whose feedback-drenched brand of drone metal can induce a sort of meditative state. With each new album or lineup change, the critically lauded outfit invites listeners to follow them on new paths to transcendence. Stripped back to its core of guitarists Stephen O'Malley and Greg Anderson, the latest iteration of the punishingly loud band refers to itself as Sun Shoshin Duo, playing on this idea of returning to the roots of your beginner's mind. As an American, these concepts can just be more humbling and simplified. It's also a nice way to put a twist on describing abstract music, which is what I think Sun is, O'Malley says. So, the Shoshin duo is also Greg and me coming back fresh to the purity of those ideas. The band's return to a duo format is a break from their tendency toward collaboration with diverse artists, ranging from jazz trombonist Julian Priester to Attila Tsishar of the Norwegian black metal band Mayhem. In this respect, the band's upcoming U.S. dates, including a January 31st stop at the Gothic Theatre in Englewood, will serve as a sort of palate cleanser. It's been nearly three years since their last show, and O'Malley says he's ready to get back to basics with his longtime collaborator. When Greg and I are in sync with this band, this music, this concept, everything else builds on that, he says. For me, it's a bit primordial, because it's really focused on the purity of the sound we've been refining and engineering over all this time. We're sculpting with the big slabs of marble that have just been sliced off the mountain, but it's not the super-refined end-result sculpture. This purity of sound has led many critics to label Sun as minimalist, a designation that doesn't quite feel right to O'Malley. He sees this as a response to the band's rejection of traditional song pillars, like verse, chorus, and melody, in favor of elements like atmosphere and volume. He says, Many people hang on to the descriptor as a catch-all for music that sounds abstract or unstructured to their ears. I think minimalism is used as a kind of bucket people can throw things in. Like, I don't understand this. 
There are 90-minute pieces where few changes have complex harmonic structure. They don't have the instrumentation or sounds that we're used to. They seem to not move, and they remind people of stillness, O'Malley says. Or it's boring. That's another thing. Minimalism is a kind of chrome plating on the word boring for a lot of people. The boring descriptor is especially at odds with the band's constant gravitation to new musical ideas and collaborators. The Shoshin nature of Sun carves a space for openness and experimentation among themselves and with others, including the late groundbreaking composer Alvin Lucier, whose continual push toward the new seems to have left a mark on O'Malley. The first music we collaborated on was a composition he wrote for Australian composer and musician Oren Ambarchi and I to play called Crisscross. To my surprise, it was the first piece he had ever written for electric guitar. And he was in his 80s already, he says. His music is really sublime and beautiful. Performing the music has also been very challenging and requires a meditative focus. But while expanding creative horizons with new collaborators is a major part of what drives Sun, it's the core duo of O'Malley and Anderson that ultimately move the wheel. The pair have been able to tap into a creative wellspring with one another for decades, having both been in the death doom band Thor's Hammer and then Burning Witch before forming Sun in 1998 after the latter's dissolution. I'm having a once-in-a-lifetime collaboration with Greg Anderson, O'Malley says. This has been really central in our lives for a long time. That's incredible. We built this whole thing up, this whole life around these ideas. And people are more supportive than ever. As for what has kept Sun going over these last 25 years, O'Malley says, It all points back to the ritual of the live performance. Taking the stage with his longtime collaborator, the pair cutting berobed silhouettes against a billowing mass of fog and flashing strobes provides a unique sort of magic for the band and the audience transfixed by their meditative wall of sound. With Sun, our longevity, the real core of it, has been the live performance and that alchemy of what we're doing with our sound and ideas, O'Malley says. And that alchemy turns into a chemistry with the audience in the participatory movement through these spaces and acoustics to create a very meaningful experience. On the bill, Sun with Callie Malone, 8 p.m. Tuesday, January 31st, Gothic Theatre, 3263 South Broadway, Englewood. Words of Comfort Atlantic senior editor John Hendrickson returns to Denver to discuss new book about his stuttering journey by Adam Perry. John Hendrickson lives in New York City, but the front range is where his life first began to take shape. Currently a senior editor at The Atlantic, the 34-year-old journalist cut his teeth as a cub music reporter at the Denver Post, spending his fresh out-of-college days living in the vibrant Baker neighborhood making great friends at the paper and great friends in the music scene. One of Hendrickson's first big moments at the Atlantic came in 2019, when he interviewed then-presidential candidate Joe Biden about his experience with stuttering. 
The resulting article expressed some disappointment, or at least confusion, over Biden's refusal to admit he still stutters, despite what experts say are coping mechanisms easily seen in Biden's public appearance. What Joe Biden can't bring himself to say, as the powerful piece was titled, also represented a life-changing moment for Hendrickson, who discussed his own stutter in the article. Before the Atlantic feature on Biden was published in the magazine's January to February 2020 issue, Hendrickson's speech impediment was very much the elephant in the room throughout his life. He virtually never discussed it, even with family and friends. After writing that article, so many people who stutter from around the world began reaching out to me and began telling me their life stories, Hendrickson says. That made me feel like I was tapping into something, that there was a desire for more writing about this topic, and that there were layers to explore. But it took me a long time to get there and to become comfortable pursuing it all, and I don't know if I ever became 100% comfortable. I think I just reached a point where I was like, all right, I guess this is happening, and then you're just sort of moving forward. I think that's how a lot of life is. Hendrickson's new book about his stuttering journey, Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter, was published January 17th via Penguin Random House. In the wake of his article about President Biden and the mountain of correspondence it garnered, the longtime reporter finally engaged in the stuttering community. A lot of people were encouraging me to check out one of the local chapter meetings of the National Stuttering Association, NSA, and it took me a while to find the confidence to go, Hendrickson says. Maybe nine or ten months after that, I went to my first meeting of the Brooklyn chapter. It happened over Zoom, but it was kind of crazy to be around all these other adults who stutter, and it kind of rocked my world. The following year, he attended the NSA annual conference in Austin, followed the next week by a smaller event hosted outside Denver by a Colorado-based 501c3 nonprofit called Friends, the National Association of Young People Who Stutter. It was a great reason to go back to my old stomping grounds, and at that conference I actually met Steve Varney, Gregory Allen Isakov guitarist and person who stutters, and had a real great conversation with him. And I met some other wonderful Colorado people who stutter, and I've remained close with them ever since. Throughout his early career as a writer, Hendrickson attempted to cover up his stutter by leaning on email and in-person interviews, which he says ease his stutter. Phoners, as journalists often call phone interviews, presented a time pressure that just takes you back to childhood. Now he's more at ease telling subjects up front that he stutters. I think I've only become comfortable doing that in the past two to four years, and I went through so many interviews trying to keep the world's worst secret. Like, I hope they don't figure it out. It was so obvious, he says. Disclosing that I stutter before we get started puts the other person at ease and makes them let their guard down a little bit in a way that they might not to a more intimidating, fast-talking journalist. And the result is, I think, that I've been able to generate more interesting stories out of people sometimes. Now Hendrickson is embarking on a book tour, and he's recently spoken about his stuttering journey on PBS, as well as a moving New York Times video about what it's like to stutter. I'm very honored that some people want to talk to me about it, and that I'm doing some interviews, he says. I'm very grateful for that, 
and I'll be traveling around the country talking about stuttering, talking about the book. That's something I've never ever done. Something I never ever dreamed possible. If someone had told 10-year-old me, when you're 34, you will be public speaking about your problem, I think I would have laughed in that person's face. It's a rare opportunity, and I'm grateful to talk to anybody about it, because it's just so cool to connect with others and trade experiences. Stuttering doesn't, can't, define who you are, President Biden has said. But anyone who traversed childhood and or adulthood trauma from stuttering, even if they grew up to be a successful writer or even president, knows well the connected feelings of shame and helplessness. The cultural perception of stutterers is that they're fearful, anxious people, or simply dumb, and that stuttering is the result, Hendrickson wrote in his landmark piece on Biden. As he prepares to return to Denver for a life-on-delay conversation at Tattered Cover on January 26th, Hendrickson says he is humbled by the idea of a young person who struggles with a stutter discovering his book. It's aimed at adults, but I, in many ways, wrote this book for my teenage self, he says. This is a book I wish I could have read when I was 16 or even early college. I think it would have just given me comfort. I'm totally overwhelmed and honored at the prospect of a teenager who stutters, possibly reading this, and I hope it gives them comfort. On the Shelf, John Hendrickson in Conversation with John Wenzel, 6 p.m. Thursday, January 26th, Tattered Cover, 2526 East Colfax Ave, Denver. No purchase necessary. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. Have a good night. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.